Good morning. I hope uh, that you are benefiting uh, from our summer teaching series as we walk together through the Ten Commandments this summer, just uh, learning together how to live as God's kingdom people in the world. I believe with all my heart that God is wanting to move in you, wanting to move through you in powerful ways to make a difference in the world, that God wants to use you in powerful ways to advance his kingdom in the earth. But I also believe, I have to tell you with all my heart, that that is only going to happen as you and I grow every day in living out the values and the culture of the kingdom of God. Kingdom people produce kingdom results. And when kingdom people grow, the kingdom of God grows with them. That's really how God designed his kingdom to grow as you and I grow. Becoming more and more like Jesus, acting more and more like Jesus, living more and more like Jesus, and demonstrating him more and more in the world. Now, last Sunday marked a halfway point through this uh, teaching series on God's kind of prescription for kingdom living. And before I move into the sixth commandment this morning, I want to give you a quick recap on what we've covered so far. We've got people in and out all summer long, traveling and vacationing, have a great time. So a quick recap. In the first two commandments that we looked at, you shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make any idols or bow down or worship them. Uh, We pointed out that everything in your life is supposed to be about God, for God, and the glory and the pleasure and the purposes of God. Your entire approach to work and um, uh, family and friends and downtime should begin with God and should point to your deep desire to glorify God and advance his kingdom in the world. The week after that, Pastor Matt shared with us that God cares deeply about his name. And so as people who bear the name of God, who take the name Christian, it's incumbent upon us to bear that name well. Never to dishonor the name of God in in our actions or attitudes, whether at work or on the ball field or, or anywhere else. And we also need to wield the name of God to great effect as a source of divine power, And it's the only name given in the world by which people can be forgiven and saved. Next, we looked at the do this commandment to take time every week, one day out of every seven, to set aside our normal work, our regular routine, and gather together to worship God together, to meet together and worship him and remember him and his goodness. Last week, Pastor Bob Duddleson taught that as kingdom people, In the kingdom of God, we honor and respect authority, and especially the authorities of our mothers and fathers. And that brings us up to the sixth commandment and where we are this morning. And uh, to get us focused and moving, would you stand with me, please, and honor the word of God? And we're going to read together Exodus chapter uh, chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Together we read, you shall not murder. Let's just do that one more time. You shall not murder. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Amen. Well, now, I suspect many of you uh, uh, probably learned this commandment initially. In the same way you probably learned most of the commandments initially, many of you probably learned it in the King James Version. And this verse in the King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill. Pretty straightforward stuff, really. God doesn't want you to kill anybody. 
So I just want to say, if you're here this morning and you are presently struggling with this particular commandment, I'd like you to raise your hand because we do want the ushers and the security team to be aware of your whereabouts at all, at all times. Actually, I, um, I love teaching this commandment, especially to young people, high school students, college students, because I've got to say, it, it has been my experience that very few people have actually thought very carefully about this particular commandment. It's so short, and it's so apparently straightforward that pretty much everybody immediately assumes they know exactly what it means, and they immediately assume they're not guilty of breaking it. But I've got to tell you, sadly, one result of giving too little thought to this particular commandment has been a tremendous amount of confusion in our culture. Confusion about things like abortion, capital punishment, and even national defense policy. Failing to consider thoroughly the four words that make up this commandment has led to very real negative consequences in our nation. So I want you and I to take a few minutes and walk through it a little bit together this morning. Let's start with the most obvious and most literal application of the commandment. Taking the four words at face value, you shall not murder. According to the dictionary, murder is the unlawful, premeditated taking of human life. So immediately you recognize this commandment forbids you to strangle your neighbor for letting his dog bark all night or to poison your husband for leaving his socks lying around the house. Look for a loophole in there all you want. You're not going to find one. Sadly, however, in contemplating this commandment, most people stop right there. Don't murder my husband. Check. But the problem with stopping right there is that there's so much more to contemplate even at the most basic, literal level. For instance, just taking the four words at face value, you shall not murder, has major implications for the abortion debate in this country. As I mentioned, the dictionary defines murder as the unlawful, premeditated taking of human life. And abortion is clearly premeditated, but in this country, it is currently lawful under U.S. Penal Code. But that doesn't really settle the matter, because this study is not a law school lecture. We're considering the laws of God, not the North Carolina General Statutes, or the history of U.S. jurisprudence determined by Supreme Court rulings. And at least theoretically, one would hope that the law of God would somehow inform the laws of the nation. Now, clearly, the heart of this commandment is about protecting the lives of the innocent. God takes seriously the taking of human life. Which means when it comes to the abortion debate, the fundamental issue is not about choice. It's not fundamentally a debate about whether, who gets to choose what a woman can do with her own body. On the contrary, it is fundamentally a debate about the taking of human life. No thinking person 
should ever expect to have a legitimate choice to kill another person. And frankly, taking away that particular choice is a great idea. I have eight children, and to be honest with you, from time to time I've wanted to kill each one of them. But as a rational person, I recognize that's never really been an option. No matter how inconvenient they are to me, no matter how much money they cost me, none of those things justifies murder. Because none of those things comes remotely close to their basic inherent right to life. A right so incredibly basic that no other right matters without it. After all, you can't exercise your right to privacy or free speech or the pursuit of happiness if you don't have life, which also necessarily means that the only right that could ever legitimately impinge a person's right to life is someone else's right to life. Which is, by the way, why both the Bible and the U.S. Penal Code do not consider a person guilty of murder if they've taken a life in self-defense. But thinking again about abortion, the argument, my body, my choice, fails to help because we're really talking about at least two bodies. But while we're at it, I really need to ask, where did anybody get the idea that you can do whatever you want with your own body? As reasonable as that may sound to you at first, I can do whatever I want with my own body. As reasonable as that may sound to you at first, I promise it's not reasonable. I'm a huge fan of personal liberty. But that notion is nonsense. No matter what you may think, You do not have the inalienable right to do whatever you want to with your own body, and you never have had that right. You don't have the right, for instance, to use your body to block a public highway. You don't have the right to use your body to paint obscenities on the church wall. You don't have the right to use your body to go smash the windows in my car. And when you get right down to it, your right to swing your fist around in the air stops abruptly at the point of my nose. The simple truth is, you cannot do whatever you want, whenever you want, even with your own body. And you've never been able to do that. That's never really been an option. You cannot legitimately use your body to harm another person. And you certainly can't use it to kill them. So the issue with abortion isn't about who has the right to tell a woman what to do with her body. And the issue isn't about choice. The issue with abortion is very simply, is that unborn baby, in fact, a baby who's simply unborn? In other words, is the child in the womb a living human being who has, as a result of that, a pretty inalienable right to life. No other question should even be allowed into the discussion until that question is settled. And for the record, for my point, I say if it was conceived from human beings, 
has unique human DNA and exhibits basic signs of life like growth and movement and sensory perception, then it is a living human being. And to kill it is in fact murder. An action forbidden by the law of the Lord, which I think should be forbidden by the law of the land. Additionally, a face value consideration of the words of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, demand that we think seriously about capital punishment. In this commandment, the Bible flatly forbids the unlawful premeditated taking of human life. As with abortion, capital punishment is clearly premeditated, and it is also lawful in this nation. But that still begs the question, should it be lawful based on the law of God? And here we face something of a quandary. Because in other places, the Bible not only allows capital punishment, but actually dictates it. Now, some people would argue that the biblical support for capital punishment was limited to the Old Testament civil government of theocratic ancient Israel. And once that ancient theocratic government went away, biblical support for capital punishment went away with it. But in a New Testament discourse on the role of civil government, with the corrupt government of the Roman Empire as his backdrop. The Apostle Paul wrote this. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. I want you to notice the language in Paul's writing here. At one point he says, rulers hold terror for those who do wrong. He says, if you do wrong, be afraid. Why? Because the rulers do not bear the sword for nothing. Which raises the question in my mind, if rulers don't bear the sword for nothing, why then do they bear the sword? Certainly not to spank you with it. This is an obvious New Testament reference to capital punishment, a reference in which the apostle defends its use. So what makes capital punishment a biblically acceptable taking of life? Well, the short answer is because it's biblically prescribed, at least in certain cases, as the proper societal response to certain criminal activities. Unlike abortion, which always takes an innocent human life, capital punishment demands a guilty one. And you should also note, by the way, that in the Bible, the power to take life in this way is not given to individuals, but rather is reserved for legitimate government. Individuals like you and me are to turn the other cheek. Governments, on the other hand, have been granted the power of the sword. This distinction between the rights and responsibilities of individuals and the rights and responsibilities of civil governments 
is also key to understanding why it may be sometimes okay for nations to engage in wars, but it's never okay for you to firebomb your neighbor. Now, I should also add here that governments are not empowered by God to wield the sword indiscriminately. And i got to be honest with you, I have some very serious concerns about the way capital punishment is meted out sometimes in this nation. So the point of this commandment is that human life be esteemed and protected. So when capital punishment is even a biblically appropriate response to some heinous crime, it is incumbent upon the state to do its level best to protect the accused from being falsely convicted or from being railroaded in any fashion. And the actual execution of the execution should always be met with humility and graveness rather than glee. Anyone who relishes the notion of capital punishment, like someone who relishes the thought of war, fails miserably to understand biblically what is happening and what's at stake. The biblical allowance for capital punishment should always stand as a stark, disquieting reminder of the brokenness and sinfulness of our world. As followers of Jesus, we never delight in the enforced death of another person. Even when we may acknowledge the justice of the consequence, we still mourn the loss of the life. Nevertheless, biblically speaking, the issue is with the appropriate application of the consequence, not with the consequence itself. And those who would seek to condemn capital punishment as immoral must do so without the moral backing of the Bible. So a careful consideration of the Sixth Commandment at its most literal level reveals varied applications beyond just a simple commitment not to suffocate your husband for snoring in bed. But when Jesus taught on this commandment, he pushed the applications much further, revealing a great deal more about what God had in mind what were his intentions behind the giving of the commandment in the first place? Listen to the words of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. I want to tell you that with these few sentences, Jesus changed everything. See, when Jesus came to the world, he came to the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, the people to whom God had revealed himself, the people to whom God had given the law, explaining to them what he desired from them. But like everybody else in the world, the people of Israel strayed far from God. 
They held on to God's words in Scripture, but they didn't hold fast to God himself. And so over time, they lost the meaning and the purpose behind the words. They took these commandments, which were given to draw them closer to God and to help them love him and love others, and they twisted them into a narrow, lifeless legalism. A legalism they falsely imagined made them acceptable with God. Just keep the rules, it'll be okay. But as I've shared with you already in this teaching series, these commandments were never intended to save you. And they absolutely, under no circumstances, can ever make you acceptable with God. Rather, these commandments were given to a people God had already saved, a people he'd already accepted, a people he'd already called by his name, a people he'd already brought to himself by grace. They were meant to draw you closer to God, to reveal his heart and his nature, and to help you develop that nature yourself. So as I said, Jesus came to a people who thought they had earned the favor of God by keeping some rules. Haven't killed anybody today. Yes, that makes me good with God. I'm a pretty good person. Yes, that makes me good with God. I haven't done anything all that bad. Yes, that makes me good with God. And into that false, flawed religious atmosphere, Jesus brought a much deeper understanding of who God is and what he wants. When God said, do not murder, Jesus explained, he meant not ever in any way, shape, or form. Do not murder with your hands. Do not murder with your words. Do not murder in your heart. or in the deepest recesses of your mind. Don't kill their bodies or their reputations. Keep a guard on your temper and on your tongue because both of them are ways that you can kill. Regarding the temper part, Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Suddenly, this commandment isn't as easy to run by. Commenting on the sixth commandment, Jesus says, anyone who harbors anger in an unhealthy, inappropriate way with his brother is guilty of violating the commandments. Now who feels certain they've never broken this particular commandment? I encourage you to take some time sometime with a concordance and look carefully at what the Bible has to say about anger. This has got a lot to say about anger. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. A quick-tempered man does foolish things. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But now you must rid yourselves of all things such as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. I assure you, I've had to talk with God a lot this week about my own failings with regard to this commandment. Keep a guard on your temper. Keep a guard on your tongue. Regarding the tongue part, Jesus says you violate this commandment 
when you call your neighbor ugly names. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka is an Aramaic term of scorn and derision. Literally, it means something like worthless or empty. You could think of it today like loser or good for nothing, which might ought to cause you to think about the last time you referred to someone in those ways. The point is, Jesus makes it clear. God expects way more from you than that you refuse to physically murder people. As far as God's concerned, we can murder them in our hearts, and we can murder them with our mouths. When you understand it as God intends it, this really is a killer commandment with very broad application. The Resurrection Church were unapologetically Lutheran. And my favorite part, my personal favorite part of Luther's small catechism is the way it elaborates on each of the commandments. The explanation of each commandment begins with a simple phrase, we should fear and love God, that. Pointing out that the real purpose behind the commandments is to bless and glorify the Lord and draw us closer to Him. And then the catechism goes on to point out how each commandment forbids certain things and requires certain things simultaneously. As the catechism explains this particular commandment, it points out that regarding our neighbor, it forbids us to do or say anything that may destroy, shorten, or embitter his life. And it forbids us to bear anger or hatred in our hearts. According to the explanation of the catechism, it also requires us to help and befriend him in every bodily need and to be merciful, kind, and forgiving. That's a much taller order than just not murdering someone in their sleep. And as always, this is where the gospel comes in. You may imagine you're good with God because you've never done anything all that bad. You may imagine you're good with God because you've never murdered anybody. But if that's the case, you're working off much too low a standard. As I shared a few weeks ago, nobody knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. After all, it's one thing not to kill somebody. It's another thing entirely to really love them. The person who's counting on her own goodness is going to be sorely disappointed when she comes face to face with a holy God. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of new life in Jesus, the good news of acceptance with God through Jesus, frees you from false hope and false pride in the empty, lifeless keeping of rules. And it also frees you from the fear and condemnation that likely come when you realize You've not loved all that well. Finally, the gospel empowers you through the power and work of the Holy Spirit to change and to grow and to begin to love well. God calls you to himself through the gospel. 
And then once you come to him by grace through faith, he sends you out into the world to live for him there by grace through faith and to make a difference, loving and blessing people. That's where the commandments can help as they show you how to love God and they show you how to love people. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't, I don't think I can live this way, I'd love to introduce you to the God who changes people through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm a pretty good person, I think I'll handle this on my own, I'd love to introduce you to the God who made you and before whom one day you must stand, a God who's infinitely better than you can imagine and whose standards are much higher than you've tried to attain. Religion says try harder. But Jesus didn't come to establish a religion. Jesus came to bring you to God and to the life God designed you to live. We need Jesus. And he wants us to go in his name and change the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, as always, for the power and the clarity of your word. Lord, you show us who you are, you show us what you want, you show us who we are and who you've called us to be. You show us Jesus as the model and the means to get there. Lord, we thank you. And we thank you that not only do you call us to yourself, but then you send us back out in your name to make a difference in the world. Help us not to be content with lifeless minimalism, but may we go for it to get into the middle of your heart and in your will and to represent you well before others. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to encourage